Hi there, my name's Ollie Kendall, and this is a re-recording of the sermon which I preached on Sunday the 6th of May. Um, I came out the other side of the of the sermon on Sunday, and I felt that I, ha- I hadn't been able to communicate fully what um, I wanted to get across. I, I don't want to at all undermine what God did through the service, and um, I know that he, he did use it, um, but I felt that um, I could I could do a better job of communicating some of the things that I did. So I spoke to Steph and, and he suggested that I re-record it. Um, and so just, I guess, uh, to make things clearer, really, this isn't a recording um, in front of church on Sunday. Uh, I'm recording this at home. So, uh, But it is from the same notes, so there's not much too different. So if you did hear it on Sunday, there, there won't be that much new, but hopefully it'll just be a little clearer. So the sermon that I'm going to be preaching is... Um, based on uh, Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 14. I'm going to start by reading that and then uh, we'll we'll jump right in. So Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you might uh, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand, uh, withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now I'm going to stop there halfway through 14. So, uh, if you haven't been at church uh, for the last few weeks, I think this is number four in uh, a series on uh, spiritual warfare um, uh, entitled No Retreat, No Surrender. And it really comes off the back of the Devoted Course, um, which was uh, the series before that, where we looked at uh, Acts 2 and the life of the early church and all of the things that they got up to, how they did life, how they lived, and and importantly, how they related to uh, the Holy Spirit. And I think it's fair to say that the church saw a real move of the Holy Spirit and and a real kind of breakthrough in terms of seeing the miraculous. We've seen healings. We've seen um, God work in amazing ways and, and real openness to the spirit in our in our services. And, and so then we come to this series, which I think is called um, No Retreat, No Surrender. And I must admit, when I first uh, heard it, I thought, you know, we're, we're in a time of victory. We're moving forward. Why are we talking about retreating? Why are we talking about re- surrendering? I know we weren't talking about that. We're talking about not retreating, not surrendering. But um, but I actually think that it's a real, really timely reminder um firstly that we are in a war um a famous preacher once said the christian walk involves many things but it always involves war um and secondly uh, that that war it there's more to that war that than meets the eye um it's important to remind ourselves that we have an enemy um his name is satan and and that he hates us he hates our god and he and he hates us um he hates us because we're God's prized possession, and because um, we are, we're, we're in a fight. We're in a fight against uh, against Him for our Lord. Um, and so, and and the good news is that in the Christian walk, um, we're not alone. Like all things, 
um, in the Christian walk. Without God, um, we are feeble, we're futile, but with him, we have the victory. And so in this passage of Ephesians, Paul runs through what he calls uh, the armor of God. And, and we're on the first first item of that um, armored outfit, God's armored outfit, and that is the belt of truth. When I was about 12 or 13, uh, I was at a school which I imagine most of you would consider to be a posh school. Uh, we had a CCF, and a, if any of you don't know what CCF is, it's the Combined Cadet Force, and it basically was, uh, we used to call it the Toy Army. It was it was a program where real soldiers, officers, or um, people from the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force would come into our school and, and teach us 13-year-old boys important things that we needed to know, um, like, for example, how to kill each other. And... Um, it was, uh, I think as far as I can tell, a fairly thinly veiled attempt to woo us into, the jo- into joining the army when we left school. Um, but it was uh, obviously tremendous fun. And when I was about 13, we did, uh, we had a special training scheme. And I can't remember what it was called, but I do remember the sergeant um, who came in each week to teach us about the things of the army. He was a terrifying man. Um, by all accounts, he had um, a face which looked like he was sticking his win- his uh, face out of the window of a train. It was scrunched up. He was constantly very angry. I don't think he he spoke. I think he just shouted the whole time. I remember one time he told us um, that he had been away the previous week because he'd had a toothache and uh, woken in the night with a toothache and he'd been down to the shed and got out some pliers and, and wrenched his tooth out. And, of course, he woke in the morning and the pain was still there, and so he had to take the day off uh, to go to the dentist. So this guy was, you know, ridiculously manly, the kind of guy that would make Chuck Norris look like a bunny rabbit. And um, I remember one week we were learning uh, about radio communication, and he was strapping radios, uh, military radios to us, and they're quite amazing pieces of equipment. The microphone, you strap it to your neck, and the headphone, you strap to the side of your ear, and you can speak in the quietest little whisper, and you can be heard, and you can also hear the person on the other end, even when there's gunfire. It really is amazing. And so we're getting strapped into these and tuning into military frequencies, and I remember a friend of mine... um, made some stupid joke, um, broadcast it over the military frequency. I don't know what it was, but it was probably some the kind of toilet humour that only 13-year-old boys find funny. And I remember this sergeant ran over to the boy, and he lifted him, he hoisted him right up in the air, so his feet were dangling. And he, and he just he beamed up at him, and he just shouted right in his face. He said, Don't you ever broadcast non uh, I don't know, non-specified terms over a military frequency. And obviously we were pretty shocked, and I think the uh, the boy all but wet himself. He was terrified. And the sergeant went on to explain to us that, that um, if we broadcast non-specified terms over a military frequency, we could actually be sent to prison. Now, I'm sure at 13 we probably couldn't have been sent to prison, but, but you can be sent to prison for that. And the reason for that is... is it is absolutely imperative in a wartime situation 
that a direct line of communication, unbroken line of communication, is kept between headquarters and the front line. That's because soldiers on the front line need to know who they're fighting for, they need to know the details of their mission, and they need to know the truth of their situation. And it struck me as I prepared for this talk that this is actually uh, a quite a good metaphor for, for how the enemy would seek to deceive us. Um, there are two ways that the enemy can seek to defeat us, uh, uh, deceive us. Firstly, um, through radio jamming, and I don't know whether you know what radio jamming is, but it's it's when the enemy broadcasts on the same frequency that you're communicating with um, headquarters white noise. Um, and so when you're tuning in and you're trying to hear the voice uh, of headquarters, you're trying to hear about your mission, you're trying to hear about what you're fighting for, and you don't hear anything. You just you just hear white noise. It's just confusion. And I think, and I'm going to use this as a as a metaphor for. Um, the culture in which we live, where we um, are looking for the truth of God, and and actually the culture in which we live is is, is very confused about the nature of truth itself. Um, the uh, the the frequency, if you like, is um, all white noise. There's no there's no um, clear uh, clear narrative. And secondly, I'm going to be looking at false information or propaganda, and that of course is when uh, the enemy would broadcast things to uh, to us uh, uh, and to broadcast us lies lies about God lies about our situation our status uh, before God so firstly we're going to look at radio jamming the culture that we live in here in London uh, alongside the rest of Western Europe and North America is one that is very confused about the nature of truth um, I don't think it's controversial to say that um, it's impossible really to understand how um, our current society views truth or claims to truth um, without first starting with the Enlightenment. Now, many of you will have heard of this movement. Um, it was and, and still is really a hugely influential movement in the development of how our society thinks and how our society works. It was a, it was a movement of cultural, uh, a cultural movement of intellectuals um, in the 18th century uh, based in Europe and America, and 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 these intellectuals, they they saw their purpose as uh, to to reform society and to advance knowledge, um, primarily through encouraging people to think for themselves. Now it sounds um, enormously su uh, simple, but they essentially argued that um, before this uh, this moment in history or this this point in history, the Enlightenment, the vast majority of people. Um, didn't think for themselves they relied on um, received wisdom and superstition and really that what needed to happen was that for the masses to throw off um, this received wisdom this superstition um, and to rely on on reason uh, rely on their intelligence um, to to find a way uh, the great philosopher Immanuel Kant suggested that the motto of the enlightenment was dare to use your own intelligence now, this movement sparked a whole plethora of philosophies and ways of uh, viewing the world and ways of working things out. And, uh, but uh, as we look back on history um, and the period following the Enlightenment, um, we see that really it was one that looked to human wisdom as the main path to truth, uh, truths about the universe. 
it was an age, uh, the age immediately following the Enlightenment was an age of rationalism. Um, it was a time when we believed that uh, the universe conformed to laws that we could understand. Um, and that ultimately truth was out there, it was knowable, and it was just waiting to be discovered by human ingenuity. And what led on from this really was the idea that of human progress, uh, that human wisdom would provide us with the best way to live, how, how the world and society should be ordered, um, and that ultimately that these things would make society better and better, it would make the world better and better. And whilst it wouldn't be true to say that, the, um, that you know, all of the things that, that were prevalent at this time were atheistic, I think it is fair to say that, that this dependence on human wisdom and, and belief in, in the human intellect as salvation, really, it, it dispensed with the need for a God because we were looking to ourselves for, for truths about the universe, for, for um, the right way to live. In the latter half of the 20th century, hope in human wisdom um, was starting to get unpopular. It, obviously, it had led to many advances um, in um, the sciences, in medicine, in industri the industrialization, technological revolution. There were obviously huge advances, but there were also real problems and, and problems that really um, cut to the core of, of who we are, that real deep problems. We found that as we got richer, more advanced, that we hadn't really shared it around. But if anything, the poorer got poorer, and the uh, while the rich had thrived. What's more, uh, the human ideologies that we concocted, um, they hadn't led to the peace and tranquility that we'd hoped for. Um, colonialism was billed as a movement that would go out there and, and um, civilise the world teach the world what um, Western Europe had discovered to be the proper way of life. Uh, but really what, it what, it, what happened was it, it used a, a monopoly on truth to control uh, people, to enslave um, nations and uh, continents even, um, and to steal and strip resources. Nazism really was... Uh, the extreme logical conclusion of this idea of progress. One of the central themes of Nazism um, was this idea, this notion of the, the super race and the ruthless pursuit of this distorted idea of human perfection um, led, to, uh, led to genocide. If you didn't live up to what the Nazis said was perfection, um, then you were to be exterminated. Now, in the latter half of the 20th century, um, wider society started to decide that, that depending on human wisdom, um, a grand plan for progress uh, concocted by um, our intelligence probably wasn't a good idea. Now, the, the kind of philosophical underpinning of this had started much earlier, but it really started to enter the public consciousness in Western U Europe um, in the late 80s. And, and this is really what we call the postmodern era, um, or postmodernity, and it's the era we're in at the moment. Um, what this era is, is it's a reaction, really, on the dependence on human wisdom for truth and meaning. Basically, um, we look at what's gone before, and, and we basically say it hasn't gone very well, that um, 
we we came up with proper ways of doing it and all uh all that happened was he ends up dividing one another um enslaving one another killing one another and that that that, that is still a very, you know a central problem uh with the human race and so what we decided is a coll- you know a collective plan for human progress um doesn't really work and so what we should do is uh, we should we should dispense with the collective plan. We should dispense with this idea that there is a, a true way of doing life. And, and really what we should do is just secure uh, the freedom, um, the autonomy of the individual. And that's really the, the highest ideal of our age. Um, if you think about it, it's something that's never, ever challenged. Um, the freedom of an individual to determine what's best for themselves, uh, to decide um to decide uh, what path they should take now obviously if you went up to someone in the street tomorrow and you said do you, you know do you believe that nothing is true very very few people would turn around and say yes i believe nothing is true but in an environment where we've exalted um individual autonomy uh it the the freedom of the individual to to the highest point that is our kind of ultimate ideal in that environment it becomes very very difficult to say that something's true now two thinkers that um have been hugely influential in this area are frederick nietzsche and michael foucault and and nietzsche and foucault both explored this uh, relationship between um claims to truth and power and it's it's definitely an oversimplification of of what both of them were saying but i think probably the most influential um the most uh the way their ideas have have most pervaded into society is this idea that to claim something is true to, and not just for yourself but for everyone to claim a, a universal truth um carries with it an attempt to exert power over people to control people and and to imprison people and this is a hugely influential idea we find it um in our attempts to evangelize to tell people the good news you know you'd say to someone for example um i believe that sex before marriage is wrong and it's not just wrong for me it's wrong for everyone and people would turn around and say how dare you how dare you say say that because there's this fear there's this fear that we're trying to control them there's this fear um that in claiming that there is a right way of doing things um that we're claiming to imprison people i was reading just the other day um of a doctor who was dismissed for sending an email out about uh, a prayer i think it was a franciscan prayer that he'd found um inspirational and people had interpreted that as an attempt to to push his religious views onto them and they'd reacted badly and and as a result he had been dismissed it was this fear that he was somehow trying to um trying to challenge th- their um rights to individual um freedom and autonomy and i think the reason that this uh idea has been so, uh, you know has been so pervasive that it's been so influential is 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 because there's a lot of truth in it you know we look back at history we look back at the uh, post enlightenment era with colonialism like i was talking earlier and, and 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 many of the things and ideologies of of the time and really the the truths about the universe the uh the plans for human progression 
led uh, led to imprisonment and oppression, um, war and and slavery, and 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 so in many ways we can see where this has come from. In fact, Jesus, when he's criticizing uh, the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, um, really his criticism of them is you're using your uh, monopoly on truth, your monopoly on interpreting of the scriptures, um, not uh, not for good, but simply to increase your status in society, to exert power over people. But Jesus teaches us that we can't universalize this. We can't we can't say that all claims to truth imprison people. And Jesus, in fact, says this um, explicitly in John eight thirty two. He says the truth will set you free. He said, you know, truth won't. Not all truth will imprison you, but the truth will set you free. In order for us to understand this, I think we have to think again about what it means to be free, because in the current society that we live, um, we have this view of freedom that is um, the total absence of restraint. And yet the classical concept of freedom, uh, the view of freedom that was prevalent at the time of Jesus and the view of freedom that Jesus taught um, was was that uh, that was quite different to that. Jesus taught us that we were put on earth for a reason. And true freedom was finding that reason and living it out. C.S. Lewis gave a very helpful illustration with this. He said a fish isn't fully free unless it's limited to the confines of the water. Indeed, many fish are limited to a very specific type of water, be it um, salt water or um, fresh water. And, and, and many fish will only survive within a certain temperature. And so um, a fish, in order to fulfill its purpose, in order to, to do all the things that fishes do, swimming around the sea or, or whatever, in order for them to be truly free, they need to, they need to have the right conditions. If you if a fish um, could go anywhere um, out out into the land, it wouldn't be truly free. But it had to have the right conditions in order to uh, to live. I see that I see um, this uh, paradox of freedom every day in my work. Uh, I uh, in my in my work I work with homeless people. I helped to run a night shelter in East London during the winter, and I work for a, a national charity. Um, that works with homeless people and and many many of the men that I work with um, are totally free with indulging their desire to consume alcohol and yet it doesn't free them it enslaves them so at this stage I guess some of you are asking you know where are we going with all this um, and what's the point of all this firstly I wanted to point out that 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 human wisdom is changeable the way our parents thought about the world and the way their parents thought about the world is, is very, very different to the way we think about the world. And with each passing generation, um, we frame the way we think about the world in large part in reaction um, to uh, the generation that came before us. So it doesn't it doesn't uh, it's not it's not necessarily a great idea to to universalize the way we're thinking about the world and say, yes, that is um, that's the best way of doing it. And I think, all, I think in, especially in this context where we're reminding ourselves that we're in a war, it's really important to remember that the enemy will use confusion and the wisdom of the world to, to, to distract us uh, from the cause um, and to distract us, maybe even to cause us to directly oppose um, uh, God and, and the truth of what God's called us to. 
In Colossians, we're warned specifically against this. In Col Colossians 2 verse 8, it says, See that no one takes you captive through hollow, deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So it's a bit like radio jamming, where the airwaves are all cluttered and there's white noise. Uh, rather than hearing messages from uh, headquarters, there's, there's just confusion in the air. Secondly, I, I wanted to point out that true freedom is is finding the reason that we're here. Like soldiers on a battlefield, we need to know our mission. But what is that reason, you may ask? When we look back at human history, we're presented with a difficult fact. The fact that humans seem to be what's wrong with the world. We're the cause of almost all of our problems, be it health problems that we spread around the world with our careless lifestyle, um, or the inequality that means rich stay rich and poor get poorer we in the west get obese whilst um, people um, the other side of the world starve to death we wage wars against each other um, over territory and ideology we murder we steal and we lie and what's amazing is that nearly n nearly everyone recognizes that no matter how central this destructiveness is to who we are to human nature nearly everyone will say that it's not the way things are meant to be it's like we all recognize that uh, you know we were made for something better we were made for a mission or a purpose Jesus taught us that that purpose the reason that we were put on earth was firstly to love God and secondly to love our neighbor that if we obeyed these two commands uh, Jesus taught that basically most of our pro earthly problems would be solved and yet we don't do it we reject God's purpose for our lives and instead we choose to live for ourselves if you think about it that's quite a kick in the teeth to God who made us and called us to this purpose and it offends the heart of God through choosing not to worship him and instead worship ourselves what we're really doing is, is uh, we're turning from God is this kick in the teeth that the Bible calls sin. And it's sin that separates us from God. How can we know him if we have totally rejected everything that he's made us for and called us to? It's sin that the Bible says requires punishment because God is just. Most of the world's religions have wrestled with this central problem, the problem of our humanity. And most of them um, propose a moralistic response. They say if we can obey a set of religious rules that will mend the world's problems and hopefully will fix our relationship with God and make us right before him but the Bible teaches us that the problem goes far deeper than that that it goes right to the core of who we are and that no human effort can fix our relationship with God so this is where Jesus comes in we believe that Jesus came to earth on the cross he he took the punishment which we deserve for turning from him for sinning against him he he bore in himself uh, the punishment that that relieves us of our status our, our debt before God and it makes us right with him we believe that that when we accept this and when we acknowledge and submit to what Jesus has done for us something amazing happens that where our hearts were crooked and love to serve themselves that God gives us uh, he, he takes that old heart out and he gives us a new heart, a heart that is running in the right direction rather than away from God. We're running towards him. 
It's not that we won't sin and we won't mess up along the way, but fundamentally at our core, we're running towards God. It's that process that's like putting the fish back in the water. Finally, we're free to fulfill what God has put us here to do. It's what happened to me, and, and, and if you don't have it, you can have that freedom too. And if you're listening to the sermon and want to know more, please do talk to one of your Christian friends about it, or maybe just come to church on Sunday, um, and, and you can find out how Jesus can change your life. So we return to the battlefield, and the radio jamming stopped, and there's a clear voice coming through on the radio. But there's this other line of deception that the enemy can take, and I was talking about it earlier, it's this propaganda. See, when we come through the haze, through the 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 confusion of our culture, and accept um, what Jesus has done for us, we accept that the truth of what he's called us to, and, and found the freedom in that, Satan will then seek to deceive us through deceiving us about what God's called us to and deceive us about who God is and and uh, our status before him obviously it would be impossible for me to go over every deception that the devil brings against us in one sermon but I'm going to talk about three common ones um, and I've prayed about these three and if any of them ring a bell with you perhaps you should um, meet up with someone uh, that you trust just to pray about pray about those things. So firstly, the first piece of uh, propaganda or deception that the enemy can bring is that God's grace isn't enough to forgive. This is something that I personally have struggled with greatly in my life. And there have been huge sections of my life really where the enemy has had a great stronghold here with this deception. When I first joined uh, Revelation Church, we had what were called TENS groups. If you, if you don't know what they are, uh, it's basically discipleship groups uh, where you meet up with someone who was probably slightly wiser uh, or older in the, in the faith than you. And I met up with Matt Fox and he, he would testify to the fact that probably for the first six months of meeting up with him, I'd, I'd meet up with him and I'd just say, I've got this crushing guilt. I, I, I just feel you know, so guilty all the time. I can't accept that God's forgiven me. And there's something so foundational about this deception because it cuts, it really cuts the core of what it means to be a Christian. It's basically the lie that Jesus, the Son of God, dying for us, wasn't enough to set us free. It's, it's, and and ultimately, if if the devil can rob us of that simple fact, um, he robs us of everything. I think it's particularly effective because it plays into our amazement at what Jesus has done. It is amazing what Jesus has done. And, and you know, it, there's something that just blows our minds. And, and the enemy would come in and say, it's too good to be true. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm not talking here about um, conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and it, it's, it's right to, to repent uh, to turn from it, maybe to even spend some time mourning over it and recognize the, the gravity of, of how we've offended the heart of God. But God tells us that when we genuinely confess and repent, that he forgives us. The Bible says that though our sins were as scarlet, that, that God forgives them and they become white as snow. So what I'm not talking about is conviction. 
But what I'm talking about is the uprooting of, of sin that has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. I'm talking about returning to things in, that you've done in your past, that you confessed, you've repented, you've prayed it through, um, and, and God's forgiven you, and yet you're returning to it. You're digging it up, and you're saying, oh, I need to, I need to repent of it again. I need to pray it through. I need to confess it. And the worst thing is, I believe there are some people listening listening to this that that they're doing this. They're, they're being crushed by the burden of guilt, and they believe it's God, and it's not. It's the enemy. The Bible teaches us that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's one John one verse nine. Acts three verse nineteen says, "Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing." may come from the lord colossians 1 verse 13 to 14 says for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the king in the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins you see satan hates forgiveness he hates redemption and he'll do anything he can to rob you of it god's grace is enough to forgive you now when i've heard people speak on this before uh, an example that people often turn to is to Paul. Before Paul became a Christian, he was known as Saul. And Saul, I think it's fair to say, wasn't a very nice guy. If if Saul was around today, we would consider him to be a terrorist and probably a psychopath. He was present at the stoning of, of Stephen, at the murder of Stephen, the first martyr, Christian martyr. He, and we know from Acts that he would go door to door in Jerusalem looking for Christians. He'd knock on people's doors and find out people Christians. And then it says that he would drag the Christians from their homes, women even, from their homes and put them in prison. In fact, on the road to Damascus where he had that famous conversion and massive transformation, um, he was actually on the road to Damascus to find more Christians. He'd, he'd locked up all the people he could find in Jerusalem, and he, he'd then been through their stuff, found letters that they'd written to Christian brothers and sisters in Damascus. And he'd written down their addresses, and he was actually on the way there um, to get the Christians in Damascus and put them in prison. And yet later in life, over and over again, Paul proclaims the forgiveness that he has in Christ, not through the things that he's done, but through the work of Jesus. So put on the belt of truth that says you're forgiven and protects you from the lie that you're not. The second deception uh, that I want to talk about is the lie that God isn't worth dying for. Now it's probably unlikely that anyone listening to this uh, will die um, physically for our Lord. Um, although, although one or two might, who knows? What I'm and I, but I'm not necessarily talking about that. I'm talking about a different death. You see, God says that he'll be our everything. He'll be our counsellor. He'll be our friend. He'll be our king. He'll sustain us in our time of need. He'll give us meaning. Um, and yet, for that, he asks for everything. He asks that we put him above our ambition. We put him above our reputation. We put him above our human relationships even. It's really interesting when Jesus says that the truth will set you free, his truth will set you free. The disciples instantly come back and say, what do you mean set, set us free? We're not slaves to anyone. We, we're sons of Abraham. And Jesus re retorts, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. 
You see, there can't be parts of our lives that are servants of God and then other parts of our lives that are still servants to our sinful nature. When God asks us to follow him, he says we must die to ourselves and choose life in him. I think this is a particular issue for my generation, the 20-somethings. We're such a non-committal generation. We, we like to have our options open. We like to have 20 careers instead of one. And we're called to be one thing people. We're called to be all about Jesus. You might be considering Christianity or maybe on the cusp of throwing it all in to follow him. And the enemy will seek to deceive you and tell you that it's not worth it. That living for yourself is much better than living for God. But we know that without God we're just slaves to our own destructiveness, to our sinfulness. We know that without God we're not living the life that we were made for. So put on the belt of truth that says God's path is better than our path. That lets your old rotten heart die so that you can have a new one facing in the right direction. The third deception and the final deception that I'm just gonna, I'm going to talk about today is that God isn't enough to sustain us. In a sense, this is um, very similar to the previous point that God is enough to die for. Um, it's really a call uh, to up your guard, to keep your guard up um, on the walk. This is one for people that have chosen to give it all up for God, the chosen to be one thing people, to be all about Jesus. We must never forget that that's an ongoing thing. We're not told to deny ourselves once and then get on with it. We're told to deny ourselves daily, taking up our cross and following Jesus. We must keep up our guard, putting on the belt of truth that says, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. You see, in God, we know that we'll, have, we'll be sustained, that he'll give us peace, that he will transform us, that he'll give us meaning, and even that he'll give us joy. And But the enemy will bring the deception that created things a better, easier gods to serve. We're warned specifically about this in Romans 1, when it says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served a creature rather than, than the creator who is forever blessed. I think it's really easy to dismiss this one um, because it's the kind of deception that comes about when we're vulnerable. We see that when Jesus was in the wilderness, what was his body craving out for as he fasted? It was for food. And the enemy says, you don't need to put God first. Why don't you just turn those stones into bread and you'll be fine? You see, it wasn't really about... Um, the bread it was about putting the bread above god and jesus of course re replied that that god uh, that it, it was god that sustained him we so in life we may come up against um things where we're vulnerable and the enemy will come in and say why don't you just put that above god for example at time of emo emotional turmoil when we should look to god as our sustainer as our counselor Suddenly you might find there's that boy or that girl that's always been so supportive. But we know that, but you know that they don't love Jesus and it won't be good for your walk. The enemy would say, oh, you know, it won't matter. We know that this life is hard. We know that the Christian life will invo involve opposition. It will involve financial worry. Maybe for some of us, 
Um, we worry even about the food that we'll put on the table. But we also know that God will sustain. I think it's so comforting when we read in Matthew 6 that the early church was worrying about the things of the world. Um, but it says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, God knows your worries. He knows the things that you need. He knows that you need to put food on the table. He knows that, you, that you're facing opposition in work. He knows that, that at times there is real emotional trauma. And yet he says, seek me first, seek my kingdom first, and I'll support you. I'll always be there for you. So to conclude, what practical steps can we take to put on the belt of truth? Initially, when we looked at radio jamming and, and the culture of this world and philosophies of this world, we saw how the enemy can use these things to confuse us about God and the truth of what God's called us to. We looked at how many of the ways we think about the world are actually merely reactions to the way, ways we used to think about the world and, and how changeable human wisdom is. We know that when we're long dead and our great-great-grandchildren are walking the same streets that we're walking, they'll have very, very different ways of looking at the world. They'll have very, very different um, difficulties with, uh, with the truth of God. They'll probably think that the way we look at the world is, is crazy. But God's truth will still be the same. So the first point really is, is just to encourage you um, to think critically about the culture and environment in which you live. We don't have to be afraid of asking questions, of reading about, of discussing um, and probing the bigger issues of our age. We live in an age of, I think, an unprecedented opportunity uh, to inform ourselves. We have the internet that we can tap into amazing resources from all around the world to help us to tackle these issues, and, and, and most of them we can get for free. A collection of sermons that I found particularly helpful um, to prepare the first part of this sermon was a series that Tim Keller um, did on the tough questions facing our culture. If you Google Tim Keller, Can I Believe?, um, I think um, that's probably the easiest way of getting there. Another website that I found really uh, helpful at the past, particularly at university, was bethinking.org, which I think is run by UCCF, the Christian Unions. And uh, on there, there's, there's a whole range of different articles on all sorts of different, um, different issues that, that you might be grappling with. Also, um, if you want to go a little deeper, you can, uh, via iTunes U, you can access whole courses in theology and ethics, philosophy, all of which for free. And it's, it really is amazing. There's teaching on there from the Westminster Theological Seminary, the Fuller Theological Seminary, hundreds of seminaries, really. Um, there's stuff on there from Oxford and Cambridge University, um, and it's all free. So, so, you know, you can engage with these things. And, uh, but when, when we do, we need to cling to God's word because we know that whilst the wisdom of the world will wither and die, um, that the truth of God never changes. It's the, the word of God that, that makes Satan's propaganda sound ridiculous. The Bible is a lamp to our feet in this battlefield.
So that's really the second point, Bible study. I don't have time in this sermon to go through all of the reasons why a rational, intelligent person can believe that the Bible is is true, the word of God. Um, But there's one reason which I find very compelling as a Christian. That's that Jesus thought it was true. Ultimately, if Jesus thought it was true, that's good enough for me. Over and over again, Jesus responds to to queries and and questions that the supposedly wise people of the day had um, with his teaching. And he does it by quoting scripture. Now, it doesn't take much to get into God's word. I think a lot of people are uh, worried or put off by the size of, of the book. But really, 15 minutes a day and, and you read it in a year. 30 minutes a day, you read it in six months. And if you're not reading it, you need to be reading it. You need to be getting into this book. It's not saying that we that we should do out of guilt. It's just, you know, why wouldn't you do it? It's the word of God. It's our instruction manual to life. If you're not a Christian, you should read it as well. It will help you to understand the culture in which we live and some of the unquestioned norms of our society. It's the, that book is really the origin of, of the moral framework in which we live. I think it was Theodore Roosevelt who said, um, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is more valuable than any university education. So read it if you're not a Christian, and who knows, it might change your life. We know from John 16 that as we read the word of God, um, the Holy Spirit will guide us in all truth. As we study it, it, it comes alive, the living and active word of God, and it, and it speaks directly to us. It's God speaking to us. A third way uh, that you can actively put on the belt of truth is through fellowship and accountability. So often in my life, the, the first line of defense against the lie of the enemy is, is a friend pointing out that it's inconsistent with, with what we know about God and what he's done in the past and what he has promised that he will do. Really, that was what was happening when I was meeting up with Foxy in my tens group. I'd meet up with him and, and, and I'd, I'd share with him the difficulty I was, I was having with this burden of truth, uh, this, burden, this burden of guilt that I was feeling for my sin. And he'd say, that's a lie. For some of you, getting uh, accountable and getting into fellowship will mean joining a church. If you're not in a church, you need to be. 1 Peter 5 tells us that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If you're not in a church community, you're vulnerable. And you're vulnerable to attacks of the enemy and deceptions. Um, For others of us that are already in churches... um, we need to get accountable. At Rev, we have twos and threes. And really, we need, you know, get in a two and three. You can regularly remind one another of, of God's truth and guard against the lies of the enemy. So that's three ways that you can put on the belt of truth. And, and finally, I just wanted to say that, yes, we're in a war. The, the battle's tough and it's messy. But we already know the outcome. We know that when Jesus returns... He'll throw our enemy, Satan, and his demons into hell, which has been prepared for them. Not where they're going to rule, but where they're going to be punished. The deceptions the enemy will stop. And there's going to be a pretty massive party. Until that time comes, God's given us the strength of his might to ward off the lies of the enemy. So fasten and go on fastening the belt of truth.